Lord, we come before you this morning. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of us here present would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer, please lead us this morning as we look to your word. Guide us by your wisdom, truth, and your spirit, Lord. We lift this time up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated for our sermon this morning. My friends, if you could get your Bibles back out to our 2 Corinthians passage. We're going to be working through 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 12, and moving through to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, start at, ending at verse 11. What I'm going to do this morning is take it in chunks, as we have quite a bit to work through. So let us look to chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. In verse 12, St. Paul gives us a clear image of the Christian life. The Christian lives in this world, but is not of the world. The secular does not control his conscience, right? The Christian lives under the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ, living in obedience to Jesus as king. So we see in verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. So we see in verse 12 that the Christian then, like St. Paul, is called to live this simple life. The Christian lives with godly sincerity, a sincere life, a life that is rooted in the truth of Jesus Christ. The Christian does not live by earthly wisdom, but his whole life is lived by the wisdom of the cross, a life that proclaims Christ crucified, the wisdom of God, not of this world. And so living this Christian life is living by the grace of God, as we see Paul mention this in verse 12. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, living a new life in Christ, So in verse 12, Paul boasts, not in his own ability, but having a clear conscience and morally upright conduct by the grace of God at work in him. So we see that there in verse 12. It's by the grace of God that Paul lives his life. Paul's simplicity of life and his godly sincerity is a direct result of Christ's work. So Paul does not live by the conventional wisdom of the world, but no, his life depends on God's grace. And again, Paul is not taking any credit for himself. He's not boasting in himself. But it is a clear triumph of God's grace at work in him that is the cause of his boasting. It is God's work in him in which he can behave in the world with simplicity, godly sincerity, and not living by earthly wisdom. It's by the grace of God in the first place. Paul does not have worldly motives for changing his plans to visit Corinth. And he'll explain this as we move through the passage. Because Paul lived his life and made his decisions guided by divine wisdom, by the wisdom of God. And so Paul boasts all the more in God as the director of his conduct. Let's look at verse 13. 
In verse 13, we see that St. Paul is very clear that his intention when writing his letters is so that the reader will read and fully understand. At verse 13, we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. So there's nothing unclear here in Paul. His intentions are very clear. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing secretive in Paul when he's writing. The readers of Paul should be able to read and fully understand what his message is. Of course, we can apply this to all of sacred scripture. Now, even though there may be difficult passages and it does take discipline and concentrated focus, we will be able to read scripture and understand. Think about Article 6 in our 39 articles. It says, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man. So we see that Paul writes so that we may understand fully. And everything that we need to know for our salvation is revealed in sacred scripture. So let's take to the work and discipline led by God's spirit to understand it and understand it fully. Paul writes so that we would understand. And he reminds the Corinthians here that his writings, like his ministry, are not dishonest or tricky. It's not full of any hidden meanings or concealed aims, but his writings are clear and plain. They're clear enough. And in the same way, as we said, Scripture is something that we can look to and put in work to understand led by God's Spirit. Scripture is not written mainly for scholars, but for all believers. Those who read it with a willingness to obey it while seeking God's help in understanding, will understand its basic message of salvation. And as we look at verse 14, Paul speaks of the day of Christ's return, and that the Corinthians would be grateful and proud of what God has done for them in Paul. Let's look now at the next chunk, verse 15 through verse 20. In verse 15, we see Paul speak of a second experience of grace. Paul knows very well that his visits to the church in Corinth communicate God's grace to the church. And Paul's original plan to visit Corinth, both on his way to Macedonia and on his way back from Macedonia, while en route to Judea, would have allowed him to minister God's grace to the Corinthians twice. That's what he's speaking of here. Let's look at verse 17 and 18. At verse 17, we see that word vacillating, which means to be indecisive or to alternate or to waver between different opinions or actions. Paul is clear here that he does not make his plans according to the flesh. Look at verse 17. It says, do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Paul affirms here, and he defends himself, because he does not live by worldly wisdom, but by the grace of God, as we saw in verse 12. He does not live according to the flesh, and thus he does not make his plans according to the flesh. He is governed by the divine purpose and will of God. So Paul affirms that his word here was not yes and no. It was not indecisive, right? 
But in Christ, Paul's word is always yes. And so we see that Paul's change of plans was the will of God. So Paul needed to explain his pastoral motive here, right? His Christ-like commitment to the church's spiritual welfare. And that necessitated the change of his initial plans. He appeals to God's faithfulness through verse 17 and 18. God's faithfulness as the pattern and guarantee for his own faithfulness, right? St. Paul is governed by the will of God. He lives under submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Thus, his words are rooted in the eternal word himself, Jesus Christ. The gospel that Paul preached was reliable, as with his other words as well. Let's look at verse 19 here. We see St. Paul appeal to the truthfulness and reliability of God's words in Christ. Verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. All right, so in verse 19, we see Paul appeal to this truthfulness and this reliability of the word of God and of God's words in Christ. This objective, clear, and absolute truth revealed in Jesus Christ. And this being the standard for Paul's own words and conduct. So he affirms here that his words were not yes and no. He was not indecisive in the change of these plans, but it was the will of God. Let's look at verse 20 now. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So at verse 20, all of the promises of God find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Right? All of the Old Testament promises pointing to and fulfilled in Christ in his first coming. And they'll be consummated at his final coming. And Paul expresses his agreement here, his amen, a life rooted in Christ. Thus, his words are true because they are rooted in Jesus Christ himself. Through Christ, we may utter our amen as well, and that our confidence would be fully in him. Amen to God for his glory. Let's look to verse 21 to 24 now. Verse 21 says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So in verses 21 and 22, important to note, we see the Trinity on display here. And in verse 21, we see that Paul turns to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our redemption, which leads into verse 22. God establishes us in Christ, having anointed us, right? So every believer is anointed with the Holy Spirit, set apart for God. In the Old Testament, this was symbolized with the pouring of oil on the head. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, we see that God puts his seal on believers, right? This seal, this mark of ownership, authority, and guaranteed protection of the believer by God. God seals us, my friends, not with a physical seal of wax, but with the Holy Spirit, right? It says in verse 22, and 
who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, right? He's given us his spirit in our hearts, in our inward being, as a guarantee. With the word guarantee, we can look at the word, the idea of a down payment or a deposit, right? So this refers to the installment being paid and thus guarantees that the whole payment will be made, right? Think of a down payment that secures the home's purchase. So for us in Christ, the spirit is the down payment on the believer's eternal inheritance. And when God makes a down payment on something, he surely fulfills it. He surely brings a true believer to glorification. This is for sure in Christ. For believers, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee and part of the complete salvation, which will be fully realized in the last days. So we Christians live with this heavenly life rooted in us right now. And God will ensure the perseverance of his people because all who are truly born again and saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, justified, will reach glorification because God protects them and guards them through faith. The Spirit is a guarantee. Let's look at verse 23. So in verse 23, we see that Paul uses a solemn oath here to persuade the Corinthians of his truthful conduct. He's essentially saying something along the lines of, if I'm not telling the truth, I ask God to take my life. Right? He is declaring this. Paul's life, again, is clearly guided by the truth of God in all things. So in verse 23 then, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Right? So we see that idea there of sparing them. Paul would come with power and authority, of the, with the power and authority of the Lord on his next visit to Corinth. And he wanted to give them a chance to re- repent and reflect on their sinful behavior. Right? There was initial rebellion against Paul. As we move forward, we'll see in chapter 2, verse 4, that Paul speaks of writing with many tears not to cause them pain, but to show them his abundant Christ-like love towards them. So Paul's decision not to visit Corinth, but to send them this severe letter, this tearful letter, which is not 2 Corinthians, was an expression of God's love. So in this way, he spared them of the immediate wrath, right? Think of the idea that before judgment comes mercy, he's extending mercy to them, that they would repent from this severe letter that he sent them. So in this way, Paul hoped that they, through their repentance, he would not have to come again to face their rebellion, in which he faced in his initial unscheduled visit. And the church did, for the most part, respond positively to Paul's severe letter that he speaks of. Let's look at verse 24 as well. So having spoken of sparing the Corinthians, right, to spare them of another painful visit, to spare them of more godly discipline, having spoken of sparing them, he immediately shuts down any accusations that may come from his readers um, so that he does not, he says that he does not lord it over the Corinthians' faith, 
right? Paul is clear here. He's not lording anything over anyone. He does not have selfish motives. Instead, he works to nurture the joy of others. Paul is not manipulating them with some sort of apostolic authoritarianism. No, on the contrary. He is looking out for, the, for their own good and for their own happiness and well-being in the faith. So let's look to chapter 2 now, and let's look at verses 1 to 4. But first, let, it, let us gather a few things. So here's the general image. Paul plants a church in Corinth, and then he writes 1 Corinthians. At some point, he makes an unscheduled, painful visit to which he um, comes in contact with opposition. There's a rebellion in the church against Paul. And so he leaves, and he was going to go back on the way to Macedonia. He was going to go back to Corinth on the way to Macedonia and on the way back. But instead, he writes what he calls this severe letter or this tearful letter. And he got word from Titus that they responded positively to this. But in what we're seeing in our passage is that some accused Paul of his change of plans, right? That he was vacillating, that he was indecisive. And so then Paul writes 2 Corinthians to explain himself in these early chapters. And then he moves on to to call them to forgive a man, as we'll see, starting at verse 5. So look at verse 1 now. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 in chapter 2. So Paul's painful visit, this initial painful, unscheduled visit in which he came in contact with opposition, he referred to this as a visit that was made in sorrow. And although we don't know many details about it, most commentators believe that someone in Corinth had opposed Paul or seriously offended him, right? That led a rebellion against him. And so Paul left and decided to write that severe letter, warning them, warning the church of God's judgment, calling them to repentance, and ultimately extending mercy to them. And at verses 3 and 4, if we look now, he talks about this. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. So we see Paul's purpose in writing that severe letter of rebuke, right, in which there was a positive response. His purpose in writing this unpleasant letter was not simply to make the Corinthians sorrowful. No, instead he was really seeking their best interests. And even when that meant bringing some sort of pain both to them and himself. So again, Paul is clear of his reasons as he wants to show the Corinthians his abundant Christ-like love for them. And we see Paul's disappointment in the disunity in the church at the time. And we also see his true heart for the unity of the church. Now let's look to verse 5 through 11. In verses 5 to 6, initially we see that someone, a man, had offended the whole church at Corinth. Paul asserts that someone has caused grief Not ultimately to him, but to you all, as he says, to the whole church. Paul says that the punishment of this offender has been sufficient. And that the Corinthians have exercised the proper church discipline. So in that severe letter that Paul wrote, he addressed the initial rebellion that he was facing during his painful visit. 
And most likely he also addressed this issue with this man as well, this offender, who most likely was connected with the sexual immorality in Corinth. And so Paul says that the punishment of this offender has been sufficient, and now he urges the church to forgive the offender. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. So Paul calls the church to forgiveness, that they would offer this man true forgiveness, right? To forgive and comfort this man. Look at verse 7. So you, ra- so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Recall what we spoke about last week, that God comforts us so that we can ultimately turn to truly comfort others. Paul's using the same language here, right? That they would truly from their hearts forgive this man and comfort him, lest he be consumed with grief. And so he's calling them to this Christ-like love. He encourages them to reaffirm their love for this man. So look at verse 9 and 10 now. The severe letter that Paul wrote, like this present letter, 2 Corinthians, was to the effect that the Corinthians would prove their obedience. We see that in verse 9. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So that the church would approve their obedience to Paul as an apostle under the authority of Jesus Christ, ultimately, that the church would prove their obedience to Christ. Remember, obedience being the proof of a true and lively faith. Obedience being the fruit of our justification. So we see this here in this instance. Paul is calling them to obey in restoring this man, this offender. So we see here that the purpose of church discipline is to restore, right? Not to destroy or take revenge, but to restore, to unify And so Paul wants the Corinthians to know that he himself truly forgives this man, as you see in verse 9 and 10. In in this sense, the case is closed. Forgiveness has been granted, right? And this all happens in the presence of Christ, in verse 10. We see, my friends, that for Paul and for us as well, all of our actions are carried out not in secret, but in the presence of God. Right? In fact, we live all of our lives before the face of Almighty God. Paul lived his life like this, and so must we. So here then, if Christ and Paul have forgiven the offender, the Corinthians must also forgive the offender in his immediate point here. And now let's look to verse 11. Paul is concerned with reconciliation between the majority and minority in the church to one another and as well to him. If there was a wedge driven between the Corinthian church and St. Paul, Satan would have seemed to be at work in the division because as we know, the devil loves to try to destroy church unity. And so for us as Christians, we must not be ignorant. We must work towards mutual understanding, being rooted in the truth of the gospel, in holy living, rebuke and repentance when needed and when not living in obedience to Christ, but also offering true forgiveness and working towards that reconciliation. My friends, for Paul's life and for ours as well, if there's truly been a change of heart, 
If we've been given new hearts, then a new life we shall live. And in this new life, let us behave in this world with simplicity, like Paul, with godly sincerity, not living by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. A few things that we can take away this morning as we apply this to our lives. Like Paul, let us boast in God's work in us, right? That we would operate with integrity in Christ, that we would say what we believe, that we would tell the truth. Let us also be stern and merciful in this truth, like St. Paul, that we would ultimately always be living grounded in obedience to Jesus Christ, right? Obedience being the fruit of a true and lively faith. If we've been saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, and let us follow him during our walks in sanctification as the Spirit moves in our lives and brings us to glorification. Let us be bold in our faith and conduct. Let us focus on uniting rather than dividing the church. And let us forgive others truly. And let us love them with the love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ towards those who have caused us pain. That all of our plans, my friends, in this world would be like Paul's. That they would be consistent with the will of God. That Paul's life and his words were rooted in truth. He didn't focus on popular opinion. He was rooted in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us live like that also. Let us have our whole lives and all of our words and conduct governed by the word of God himself, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the attributes and characteristics that we see in Paul. The obedience to you, Lord. The true forgiveness from the heart. A life rooted in the truth of the gospel. Being bold in that faith. Help us to live like this this week. And help us to be used, that we would be used as vessels, Lord. Use us, that we can bring this gospel to people that need it. That's why we're here, Lord. We've got work to do. Use us, Lord. We lift this time up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.